you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist official Austin Cross with you. So nice to be with you on this lovely Friday morning and so much to talk about today. Coming up, what makes the perfect cookie? Restaurateur of renown Nancy Silverton joins me to help us get to the bottom of that. It's a really burning question I have. Also, tech columnist Taylor Lorenz joins me to talk about her new book, Extremely Online. If you ever wonder what happened to MySpace and Vine, you've been sitting around wondering what happened to that. We're going to talk about that. But we start today with a look at the budget. California is facing a projected $68 billion budget deficit next year. The Legislative Analysts Office announced the news saying the state will have to look at spending cuts and reserve funds. Joining me now to talk about it, Alexi Kossif. He covers state politics and government for CalMatters, and he's been following the story. Alexi, so nice to have you with us today. Good morning. We'll file this one under what a difference a year makes. About this time last year, there was so much excitement over a potential $97.5 billion budget surplus. How did we get from that to what we are looking at today, that $68 billion projected deficit? Yeah, I mean, so this is sort of the boom and bust cycle that California seems to always be going through with its budget. Uh, especially because we're so dependent on the wealthiest Californians and their income taxes, capital gains taxes, things like that to fund the budget when the rich are doing well, California is doing well. And when the rich aren't doing as well, California mm. is not doing as well. Um, in terms of that roller coaster that, that you specified two years ago, we were looking at this, you know, hundred billion dollar. I mean, you can sort of, uh, quibble with how that's calculated, but a, a huge surplus. And that was really driven by, you know, this unexpectedly swift economic recovery from the pandemic, a lot of federal aid related to the pandemic. And now, as we've seen, there's been a lot of these factors in the economy tightening up. Inflation is hitting the housing market. It's affecting the stock market. Um, you know, the tech industry is suffering. And these are all things that have a huge impact on California. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the main uh, economic drivers in the state are just not doing as well as they were two years ago. And, you know, we've, we've got a big issue to deal with now next year. Talking right now with CalMatters, Alexi Kossif about uh, predicted $68 billion budget deficit for California. So, as I understand it, Alexi, we were already expecting about a $30 billion deficit. But then what we have to consider is the extended tax deadlines that happen uh, as a result of storms here in California. What did that do to us, having that, that tax deadline pushed off? 
you know, it's not that the tax deadline change made the situation any worse than it would have been, sure, but sure. it delayed our ability to deal with right. it. And so the state passed a budget back in the summer, not having the full picture of just how weak the finances were going to be in the coming year. And we adopted a spending plan that was probably, uh, or that it was too optimistic given what we've now seen in terms mm. of these tax collections. They actually came in $26 billion below the estimates in the budget that was adopted this summer, which is a huge decline. Uh, it's actually a year-over-year -year decline of about 25%, which is in line with declines that we saw during the dot-com bust or during the Great Recession. So uh, the fact that the tax deadline was pushed back from April all the way to November means we're only realizing now and that number you're seeing next year is a reflection of actually two years worth of tax revenues coming in lower than what's expected. And it's sort of this double hit um, of a deficit. Well, you mentioned the Great Recession about this time 15 years ago. I was looking at some of these articles way back about 15 years ago to this month. California was dealing with another multi-billion dollar shortfall. How does this latest projection compare to what we were looking at back then? So what state finance officials are trying to stress is that this is a serious budget problem, but it's not an unprecedented budget problem. The numbers mm. obviously look much bigger than anything we've seen before, but the state budget is also bigger than anything that we've seen before. And so by percentage, this is about in line with some declines that we have seen before and some, you know, admittedly difficult moments in California's financial history. Um, what they also stressed is that the state is better equipped to deal with a decline like this than it has been in the past. During the Great Recession, the state did not have these kinds of, you know, multi-billion dollar reserve funds that it could draw on to cushion the impact. Um, there will still be some difficult decisions that need to be made. Some of the ideas that the Legislative Analyst Office put forward included, you know, lowering the base funding for schools, uh, you know, undoing mm. some of the one-time spending commitments that the state made over the summer, things like that. But they said that we're likely in a position where we at least will not have to touch, you know, ongoing core programs yet that that we're not looking at those kinds of cuts next year. I mean, I understand that in response to the uh, possibility of cutting uh, education or cutting money from education, we ended up seeing a bill show up in the assembly that would protect it, right? So, I mean, this is, I think, people setting the stage for what could be coming in the year ahead. I think that different people, you know, you've got a legislature with 120 people in it, and ultimately a majority is going to have to come together to pass a plan. And everyone's going to bring their own priorities about things that they want to protect and maybe things that they're more willing to make cuts on. So schools are a particularly difficult one to deal with because we have Prop 98. It's a constitutional mandate requiring that at least for about 40% of the budget go toward schools and community colleges each year. So that's a major commitment that the state has to make. And, you know, if the amount of revenue goes down, then, you know, that means that you could potentially cut back on that funding for schools and still 
in, and still meet that 40% commitment. And, you know, that's kind of a, a difficult um, choice that the state is going to be faced with next year, whether to sort of recalculate what schools are owed using the lower revenue figures. You know, Alexi, when you see that 68 billion dollar number of course you know i think that a lot of people have a reaction to it if you if other people have read it um you kind of have a what the what you know sort of response to it uh but it sounds like based off of what you're telling us uh compared to the tight financial spots that we've been in before um i guess i'll end with my kent brockman style question of you know is it time to panic uh it doesn't sound like it is quite that time yet Alexi, right? Well, I think it depends on where you're coming from. Obviously, I think a lot of people are rightfully shocked by that number. It is certainly a pretty huge turn of fortunes, reversal of fortunes, uh, you know, compared to two years ago. Um, panic, it's 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 hard to say at this moment because we haven't necessarily seen any kind of plans yet from the governor or the legislature about how they plan to deal with this. This is going to be a many month process. And there are, you know, all kinds of steps they can take to move around money, obviously draw on these reserves that we discussed, things like that. But there's no doubt that this is not going to be an easy situation. And there are going to be people who are affected by the choices that are made. So, um, you know, if you depend on, for example, a service in the state budget that might face cuts because of, you know, uh, this deficit right now is a time to consider perhaps whether you want to get involved in advocating to protect that, mm. things like that, right? I mean, it's certainly something that that people should be looking at and hopefully following more closely in the months ahead because there, there will be a lot more debate and discussion around how to deal with this to come. Alexi Kosev, state politics and government reporter at Cal Matters, talking about a predicted $68 billion budget deficit for California. Alexi, thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Coming up, something I was thinking about for our next guest. We're going to talk to Taylor Lorenz, a columnist with Washington Post, out with a book titled Extremely Online. Really tells a lot of the untold history, the untold story of the internet. And it really got me to thinking about you know, it's still a very new technology, right? I mean, as far as our ability to post on blogs, on, on MySpace, our ability to really put ourselves out there, it's pretty new. And what I think has happened is a lot of people have had to go through a sort of internet puberty, right? Like you kind of have had to learn what's okay to put out there uh, and what maybe to just tell your friends uh, in real life. We're going to talk about uh, some of the web spaces, some of the web third places uh, that you've come to know and love. But I also think I'm kind of curious about, you know, in your early internet days, maybe something that you, you did that you realize now in retrospect, you don't do online. You can't do that. You can't say that. You can't post that. Uh, if you have an interesting story, it's just something that you're able to laugh about today. 866-893-5722 is our number. 866 866- Eight nine three five seven two two. We're talking early internet here. We're talking blogger. Here back in sixty seconds. Some- 
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist official, L-A-I-S-T official. You can join the conversation there as well. You know, TikTok may be the social media app du jour with its endless feed of algorithmically curated videos just for you. But its existence and power to make everyday people into famous content creators would not be possible without predecessor platforms like MySpace, Vine, Blogger, and others that really paved the way for the social media ecosystem that we know today. In her recent book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet, Washington Post columnist Taylor Lorenz charts the brief but rich, very rich, history of how apps like those and others have molded the business and art of content creation. They've changed the definition of fame. Think about that. And ultimately, it's changed how the internet influences what we want and how to get it. Taylor Lorenz joins me now. Taylor, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's go back to the beginning, uh, a very good place to start, the early thousands uh, with blogs. And it did not occur to me because as you're living history, you don't really realize just how historic the moment is sometimes. But it didn't occur to me until I was reading your book about how truly revolutionary it was, how truly revolutionary blogs were for people because of how they kind of got past a lot of the traditional gatekeepers that had existed before then. Talk to me a little bit about just how big of a moment it was when blogs came on the scene. Yeah, blogs were really transformative. Um, and it's easy to forget kind of how disjointed the internet was uh, prior to, you know, blogging software and search software taking off, which happened around the same time. Um, but blogs really allowed anyone to have a voice. Um, and it allowed people to kind of connect with each other um, in new ways and also discover new sort of discover new personalities online, which was previously um, almost impossible to do. And when they did come on the scene, I think that legacy media was pretty slow to recognize their value, weren't they? Yeah. For years, people treated the internet as kind of a novelty. Um, they dismissed it. It was seen as like this sort of secondary form of media um, to print, which everyone thought, you know, would would always remain the dominant kind of form. And so, um, you just saw a lot of uh, media outlets, especially magazines and stuff, just dismiss 
dismiss the blogs or um, eventually kind of set up blogs that were secondary to their print product and they actually separated the teams and stuff. I'm thinking of a lot of magazines where they had like the web team and web reporters and they were seen as sort of secondary. Um, but the, you know, what was so transformative about blogs is that it wasn't just like print media on the web, it was this sort of new form of expression where things were hyper personalized, people were kind of, you know, talking about different areas of expertise while we weaving in their personal stories and narratives and so they were able to develop these like really dedicated fan bases. You know, I have to say, being now a little bit of a social media skeptic, I mean, something that mm -hmm. we've we've seen come up time and time again, but we've seen social media platforms rise and fall. Uh, after Elon Musk bought Twitter, there have been a number of, of options, Blue Sky, Mastodon, a number of places for people to go. And of course, I'm holding my fire on all of those because I'm thinking, well, who knows what it is going to be? Who knows what the big thing is going to be? And I have to imagine that's what legacy media companies were thinking at the time. Because if I think back to my days um, of, of, of Zanga and, and live journal and things like that, it was very hard to tell what was actually content that added any value to people's lives and what was just a high school student talking about uh, how their mom didn't let them go out to the party that they really wanted to go out to. So, I mean, does it does it make sense to you in retrospect that w when the technology was so new that people just didn't know what to make of it because there's so much of it. Once when, when, so there were blogs out, so many people got blogs. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, look, I, I think you can sort of appreciate or sympathize with the media companies and saying like, it's hard to make sense of the internet and hard to kind of know like exactly what you said, like, what are the hit blogs? What are, what are the publishing platforms we should really be paying attention to? I mean, I started as a blogger in the age of Tumblr when mm. every single media company had a Tumblr account and they were blogging on Tumblr and, you know, um, and then of course Tumblr failed and went away and I don't know that it was worth it, you know? Um, but I do think that that something that they should have sort of taken more seriously was, the rise of this sort of creator personality driven media, because it was very clear from the early days of social media and blog culture that, um, you know, there were these people that had millions of readers and a lot of them were mommy bloggers who I talk about right. in my book. Um, they were some of the earliest to develop these massive cult followings. And I think that their, their scale alone, um, should have warranted them being taken more seriously. And I, I write about the many reasons why they weren't taken seriously. I think part of it is that they were mothers and women and, mm. you know, didn't have that traditional media background, but, um, but they, they were very powerful. I mean, and one thing to add on to that, because mommy vloggers, yes, it's a, it's a whole chapter in your book. It's a really fascinating chapter. Um, a lot of people forget though, early internet also didn't have pictures. So you were able to connect with a the person. They weren't putting on airs. They weren't trying to be as a lot of influencers were trying to be later in the maybe 2010s. They weren't trying to appear more affluent than they were. They were just giving people a real unpolished take. How long did it take before companies realized that maybe there's an economic component to this, that maybe we can take something that's real, that's connecting with a lot of people uh, and, and find a way to make a profit for ourselves, but also maybe pass money along to, you know, this person. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I, I think things really sort of started to change um, around the, 
you know, the turn of the 2010s, that's when you sort of started to see much more money coming into the space. Um, and like that, as you mentioned, that sort of like economic landscape sort of started to, to shift um, because the internet was getting more and more powerful. And like without pictures for a lot of the early days, I'm thinking of. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, exactly. In the early days, there was not, it was, it took so long to upload a single picture. I mean, and it's, it's always a surprise when you finally did see a picture of a person because everybody was just imagining what somebody looked like. Um, but I'm thinking of Shop Around the Corner, You Got Mail, which, you know, remake of Shop Around the Corner, uh, which is absolutely wild today that you think that people could fall in love uh, without seeing at least an image of each other. But I mean, it does kind of speak to your ability to connect with people through uh, social media, through the Internet. Um I want to talk a little bit about MySpace. This is really where I came on to the social media scene. And I should remind people, I'm talking right now with Taylor Lorenz, author of Extremely Online, also Washington Post columnist covering technology and online culture. But let's talk about MySpace uh, built on the ruins of Friendster, if people remember Friendster, uh, which was established just about like a year before. Um, so part of their strategy for building that site was poaching some of the more popular users, or at least one of the more popular users from Friendster, uh, Tila Tequila, who people might remember. Um, is this an instance of when companies started recognizing the power of influencers before we really even had words to describe it, but just the power that those people had? Yeah. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, the Tila Tequila, there was some Jeffree Star was another early MySpace uh, personality. These were people that essentially had had gained um, thousands, tens of thousands, which at the time was massive um, friends on MySpace. Um, MySpace was a little bit different than how we think of follower based social networks now, because you had to like opt in. Like if you were friends with Tila Tequila on MySpace, she was friends with you. Um, and so it was kind of impressive just how many people they were able to kind of friend on these platforms. Um, and they really also started to develop these early cults of personality. Um, they, I talk about um, this girl Kiki Cannibal as well mm -hmm. in my book. Um, there was just, they, it was a lot of sort of young people that were on the margins, um, but that had this real kind of like culture um, in terms of music, uh, the way their fashion, you know, the way they were dressed, um, their makeup looks and everything. And so they started to, they were sort of also early proto influencers and a lot of them released kind of their own clothing lines or makeup lines and sort of were, did early monetization, also did early uh, reality TV work. I mean, so Kiki Cannibal, um, she gained popularity by posting, you know, photos of her style. Um, and I, she, I think she was part of the scene scene. Was that it? Yes, exactly. She was a scene. They were called scene queens, um, basically because <laughs> they were part of this, this sort of like scene, you know, I guess like emo kind of punk rock right. type scene. I hope this is dusting off memories for a lot of people because it certainly is for me. And I can just see the bathroom mirror photos, dirty bathroom mirrors, um, dark hair. Um, but then she learned, I mean, Kiki is an interesting turning point in this conversation around uh, internet influencers because she learned what a lot of women now just know going into the whole deal that the internet is often not a safe place for them. Can you tell us what happened with Kiki? Yeah, um, I mean, she was a young girl who um, gained traction on I MySpace very early. Um, and she 
she was just kind of this like teenager in Florida um, who just turned to the internet really kind of to escape some bullying at school and um, blew up and became incredibly popular. She had this very unique look to her. Um, if you kind of can picture that MySpace style hair, it was, you know, it was really big hair, <laughs> thick eyeliner, um, kind of, you know, alternative like style clothing. Um, and she was just viciously harassed. I mean, she got really popular online and experienced what a lot of women on the early net, early internet experience, which was just unmitigated harassment, stalking, mm. abuse, um, to the point that she kind of quit the internet over it. And I, this was kind of a new phenomenon at the time, right? Because today, if somebody says, I was stalked, I was harassed online, I think that all of us know somebody if it hasn't happened to a person individually. All of us know somebody who that's happened to. But I don't think that people were really even used to having the conversations about why that was happening, the underlying sexism, uh, mm -hmm. maybe even disagreements with, I don't know, this person's lifestyle or this person's views. Is this where we started to see the cracks of social media up here where, yeah, it's a community, yeah, it's culture, but also not the safest neighborhood? Yeah, I think we started to see that really early. Like, I mean, definitely the early aughts. Um, I mean, you started to see inklings of it with the women, because um, the women, like mommy bloggers, I should say, like mommy bloggers dealt with just vicious, vicious harassment. People tried to get their kids taken away. People mm. tried to stalk and harass them. And then you saw the, you know, women on MySpace starting to get vicious harassment. And yeah, it was really, I mean, I think from the earliest days of this sort of social media culture, the internet was being weaponized against women. And as you mentioned, it was not taken seriously. Nobody cared. I mean, it just was seen as like, oh, well, turn your computer off or something, or it's your fault for being out there on the internet, you know? So there was really no sympathy, no understanding. It was and no support system either. It was it was a very like niche phenomenon. Also, as you mentioned, like most people didn't know anyone that experienced this type of thing. Talking right now with Taylor Lorenz, author of Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Taylor, MySpace died for for lack of a better term. Um, I might still be on the internet, but uh, for us, I think the shift for me happened in 2006 when I went to college. Facebook was the thing. Everybody who was relevant in my life at that point uh, then was the, the people I went to college with, essentially. But um, we just kind of watched, personally, I just kind of watched MySpace from afar just become, a, a, for lack of a better term, jankier and jankier website. Um you know, people had a lot of code. They were running a lot of HTML, I believe it was, on their pages. And so that slowed things down. Um, there were a lot of uh, ads, a lot of spoofing, a lot of people accidentally giving their login information uh, to to bots, uh, to, to people who end up posting things in their name. All things that felt very new to us um, and, and also a little bit scary. But what was it that really caused MySpace to fade into the background, go from being the peak of relevancy uh, to being completely irrelevant? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Facebook did MySpace in, and I talk about these 
um, competing models of social media. As you mentioned, MySpace was super cluttered. Um, it wasn't very user-friendly. Like it was popular with kids and bands and things like that. But like the average kind of, you know, 45 year old uh, person, I guess, like wasn't really gonna put themselves on MySpace. It was still not normalized to like put yourself out on the internet. Um, mm. And so Facebook kind of came to serve as this like bridge platform that allowed people who probably hadn't really put themselves on the internet yet to, um, to basically like ha have this like online manifestation of their offline social network. And so that's kind of how social networking in the more mainstream way started. And Facebook, of course, standardized everything. Everything was very sterilized. It, you know, um, everyone had the same sort of profile. It was very clean looking compared to MySpace. And so it was just, it was more user friendly. And so it just became very popular very quickly. Uh, so much to get to in this book, so much good stuff. Um, I do want to ask, because one of your early versions of this book went very heavy on Vine and the history of Vine, mm -hmm. just to switch gears a little bit. Um, video streaming platform, early tens, did not really seem to last very long, but I think that the spirit of Vine or Vine energy, as the young folks call it on TikTok, still kind of exists. Um, what happened to Vine? Yeah, well, Vine, oh, Vine was really TikTok before TikTok. It was the first mainstream um, mobile video editing tool, and it was bought by Twitter pre-launch. It was enormously popular. I would say one of the most important apps um, in sort of 2013, 2014, and they really squandered it. Um, it was really mismanaged into the ground. Mm. They alienated all of their top content creators. Um, and it just became this absolute mess and ultimately shuttered. It, it was really dead. It announced its closing at the end of 2016 and then formally closed on January in January 2017. Seemed like it really was the candle in the wind of social media platforms. Yeah. Uh, but then TikTok put creators first, as you write, in a way that other platforms had not. And so that brings us up to present day. Um what's making TikTok work? It's it's huge now. I understand that most young people, when they're doing a search, uh, instead of going to Google, as a lot of us were taught, or a lot of us learned, or, or Yahoo even, or AOL, uh, they go to TikTok. What's making TikTok work so well right now? Yeah, I mean, I think TikTok is just really, truly like next generation social media, where it's very algorithmically driven. Um, so, you know, on TikTok, unlike all these other sort of platforms that existed prior to it, you don't need to follow anyone to see their content and you don't need a single follower to have your content go viral. Everything is sort of fed into this big um, algorithmic system and it sort of tailors the content, it delivers content to you based on what it thinks you want to see in an algorithm. So you open up, you consume all the content through this algorithmic feed, and the algorithmic feed is filled with content, so maybe some from people you follow, but a lot from people you don't follow. Um, and it's just content that the algorithm believes you to be interested in. And they have a very sophisticated algorithm that really does deliver, you know, the most engaging content. And so, um, it's just, yeah, I think it's just such a superior product to 
you know, these other clunky apps, like you mentioned Twitter X uh, earlier or Instagram, even where you have to manually follow people to see mm -hmm. their content. It's just bad. And none of the other platforms have an, a good enough recommendation algorithm either that they would want that. Like, for instance, on threads or Instagram, if you suddenly got rid of the following, you know, if suddenly you had just this feed of algorithmically distributed content, their algorithms are just not good enough to deliver us that content, whereas TikTok is just TikTok is really, really, it's just like the product itself is superior. Also, as you mentioned, they took creators very seriously early on and really leaned into that side of the internet. I'm talking right now with Taylor Lorenz. Taylor, I've heard you say before, internet culture is culture or something along those lines. Um, but it's also a pretty toxic place as we touched on. I, I think you know this firsthand after you uncover the name of the person running Libs of TikTok on X, uh, which reposts TikTok videos primarily from the LGBTQ community often frames them in an incendiary way. Um, obviously, there was a lot of backlash from that. I actually remember anecdotally, I saw you at a restaurant in West Hollywood and I wanted to say, hey, I love your work. But I also <laughs> thought, I don't want to freak her out because I know there's some stuff going on online right now. Um, <laughs> as the internet continues to evolve, as this culture continues to take over in more places in our lives, should there be more conversations about uh, how to keep this neighborhood uh, a safe neighborhood for, for women, for people who are in marginalized communities? Yeah, well, I wish you had said hello. I would have been uh, <laughs> thrilled to say hi. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that um, anybody that covers fandom, I think really sees kind of like how the internet can be weaponized um, very, very early. And I think it's something that, that needs to be taken seriously because not just it's, it's affecting more journalists' lives, but it's affecting all of our lives more often. You know, anybody, as you mentioned, um, libs of TikTok, and there's all these other accounts that kind of like take content from all over and kind of basically decontextualize it and use it to drive harassment. I mean, I saw a video on Barstool the other day of a, of a girl and it was very, I mean, it was well-meaning, but this girl was kind of being silly, I guess you could say, not, not doing anything funny, but just kind of falling down in a funny way. And like, hmm. I was just thinking, God, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny to laugh, but that's a real person, you know? And I think you see this constantly, right? We're seeing more and more videos of real people going viral. Um, and sometimes they're being recorded because they're, you know, doing bad behavior. But a lot of times it's just like, oh, look at this funny person I saw on the subway, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And let's all laugh at them and that they can end up just getting doxxed and swatted and hate, you know, hate, hate comments like off nothing. So we're living in this more and more interconnected world. And I think um, online harassment is becoming more pervasive, especially against women and marginalized groups. Um, and so I think it's really important to take these things seriously and build safety mechanisms into these platforms as they scale. And that's something that the, the whole generation of tech companies did not do. And mm -hmm. I really hope that as we sort of build, you know, whatever the next platforms of the future are, we build in some safeguards and make sure that, you know, the internet is a safe place for everyone so that everyone can have a voice. That's, that's sort of the promise of the internet. That's Taylor Lorenz, Washington Post columnist covering technology and online culture. Her recent book is Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Also, just a joy to read. Taylor, thank you so much for coming thank on today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
This is Air Talk on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram right now at LAist Official. When we come back, I will be talking with James Beard Award winning chef, baker, restaurateur Nancy Silverton about the cookie that changed her life. You know, that's got to be a good cookie. Our producer, Lindsay, made the cookies from this cookbook. Uh, and I'm going to try them. I'm going to talk to Nancy about it. Stick around. We are back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. Austin Cross with you. So nice to be with you. Coming up in the 10 o'clock hour, it's Film Week with Larry. I should also mention, because it is Food Friday, we're live streaming on Instagram right now at LAist Official. I want you to think about the last time you truly enjoyed, truly enjoyed a pastry or a baked good. I'm not talking about that break room grocery store cookie that satisfied your sweet tooth or the it was there and it was free cinnamon roll that was suspiciously dry. You don't know how old it is, really. Or the bake sale. God bless them. They tried apple pie where the apples were so crunchy. You might as well have eaten a dang apple. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the cookie that you tell your friends about. The muffin that you can't tell your baker friends about because they'll start feeling a little bit insecure. I'm talking about that slice of cake that took you back to grandma's kitchen where food was love and all the pain and turmoil of this life felt a world away. Now, if you have experienced this, congratulations, my friend. You are living the life. But if you have not, then you might might try a recipe or two out of Nancy Silverton's new cookbook. She was the original pastry chef in Wolfgang Puck's Spago, went on to found a number of institutions here in SoCal. Her latest book is The Cookie That Changed My Life and the more than 100 other classic cakes, cookies, muffins, and pies that will change yours. She joins me now. Nancy, thank you so much for making the time. Well, thank you. And what an introduction. I love (laughs) listening to all that. If I don't sell one book from that introduction, I'd be surprised. (laughs) I mean, it was was a mouthwatering just to, to flip through these pages. Uh, But I want to start at the beginning just to give some context. Uh, It all started during the pandemic. There was a cookie that your husband picked up, a peanut butter cookie. It was from friends and family in East Hollywood. And you said that it had all the signs of success. Before we even talk about that bite that you took into that cookie that launched this book, can you tell me about the signs that you were looking for of success? Yes. You know, so 
you know, you look at a cookie like a chocolate chip cookie or a peanut butter cookie or a ginger cookie, and I don't care what anybody says. They're supposed to have a certain look, right? And those three cookies in particular are supposed to have rounded edges. They're supposed to be chewy when you when you break into them. And they're supposed to have a crackly top on the top. <laughs> uh, and that's what this cookie looked like. It was textbook perfect, this peanut butter cookie. And uh, as I like to tell everybody, uh, I pretend that I'm very humble and um, I appreciate everything that everybody does. But deep inside, I'm incredibly uh, competitive. And so when I either see something or I taste something that is better than my version, it really irks me. And so what it did was it inspired me to take that recipe and tweak it so that it was a better version of itself. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek because Roxana from, from uh, Friends and Family, by the way, the baker of that uh, cookie who used to work for me at Campanile, uh, has made a perfect peanut butter cookie. So when I say that I tweaked it to make a better version, I just mean I tweaked it to make it my version. Uh, and that was the cookie that, um, you know, I actually used her base because I had her recipe. I had just done a intro or a, had just done a, a blurb for her upcoming cookbook. So I had that recipe in my PDF on my, uh, on my phone and I was able to download it and a bake from that cookie and then set to work on making it my version. And so what I did was that I filled it with peanut butter and I topped it with, um, roasted salted Spanish peanuts oh. and I popped it in the oven and out came uh, a version of the most peanut buttery peanut butter cookie with all of the look of that classic rounded edges, crackle top, chewy interior. Um, and with that cookie, um, I got to thinking that what I would really love in a cookbook was a uh, all the recipes that I really wanted to make, mm. all those simple recipes that were memorable, craveable, and weren't really technically uh, involved, uh, and have that in one book. You know, with the with the uh, the good and the bad of the Google these days is that you can uh, find anything you want, but sometimes you find too much. So, for instance, you Google peanut butter cookie and up comes 5,000 recipes and you think, well, where do I start? And I should also um, mention in your book, you said that some changes that people make or some of the trends in food today, um, they aren't really all that innovative, really. There's sometimes the question, uh, the answer to a question that nobody asks, uh, in, in a sense. There, people make uh, changes or tweaks to dishes that that don't really lend to them uh, being better. But what I've noticed from you in this book and how you break down the old classics is that you you both magnify what's good about them. Uh, you also find ingredients that work in harmony with the elements. I'm thinking specifically about your spiced graham cracker recipe. And graham crackers are, you know, historically one of the blandest things that you can eat. So um, tell me a little bit about that effort of how you kind of take the thing that already exists, or even I'll, I'll mention 
uh, your banana bread, which has halved bananas on the top, or your corn mush muffin that has freshly creamed corn in it. Uh, you're really taking a flavor or the theme of the dish, and it seems like you're amping it up a little bit. Am I getting that slightly right? A little bit right? You're getting it 100% right. You know, so what I didn't do is I didn't, I didn't uh, go astray. You know, I didn't say take a, let's just use that peanut butter cookie as an example. I didn't take that peanut butter cookie and add so many strange elements to it or ingredients to it that you eat it, you make it and you eat and you say, well, that was good, but I'd really rather have a peanut butter cookie. So what I delivered with all the recipes is really the essence of what that item was. However, I looked so closely at it and baked it each one so many times that I tried to make the very, very best version of it. So say, um, say that graham cracker, for instance. So mm. I have fond memories, you know, I wasn't allowed growing up. I wasn't allowed a lot of sweets, but wow. one thing I was allowed was graham crackers. And I remember dipping in them in milk. I remember mm. the flavor and I remember loving graham crackers because it was the one sweet cookie-ish type of, uh, of uh, dessert I could eat. So I went back and, you know, sometimes you have to go back to the source. So I went back to what I thought was the best brand of uh, graham crackers and I bought a box and I ate it and I thought, well, my memory doesn't suit me that well because these are exactly <laughs> as you described them, a little bland and tasteless. So where do I go from there? Um, and I've heard a lot of people rave about uh, the love for Trader Joe's graham cracker cookies. So I went out and I bought Trader Joe's brand of graham cracker cookies. Mm. And they actually had a whole lot more flavor. So it gave me sort of a bar to, to reach for. And that's kind of what I did. You know, I tried to um, stay within the parameters of a graham cracker cookie. You know, they're called graham crackers because the original name of whole wheat was graham so it has to have a, a substantial amount of whole wheat flour mm. in it um from there i think there should be honey but there should also be some spices um but i just made batch after batch after batch so that i came up with what i think was a very flavorful um graham cracker cookie that still had that healthy component that my mother must have recognized when she saw the word graham, um, but had more flavor than the brand that I was brought up on. Talking right now with Nancy Silverton, chef, baker, author of The Cookie That Changed My Life, along with more than 100 other recipes, classic cakes, cookies, muffins, and pies that will change yours. Now, Nancy, I mentioned earlier that our producer, Lindsay, actually followed your directions and made uh, these peanut butter cookies uh, that ended up inspiring this book. Uh, and in just a second, I actually want to try them too because I think that they've been they've been very built up uh, at this point. But um, I do want to ask you about just kind of some changes happening in food. And, and I also sometimes feel as a news person that they they kind of represent bigger changes that happen in America as well because uh, – you know, here in California, I think that it's it's not uncommon, especially in Los Angeles, to say, well, I have a preferred butter. You know, I have a preferred uh, flake sea salt that comes from, you know, the Mediterranean. 
And essentially, you start building up this whole list of preferences to the point where, you know, for your standard grocery store cookie or for something that you might experience, say, if you go to another state, um, where it almost would make you feel, I imagine in their eyes, a little bit out of touch. This kind of came to light with me and my wife when we traveled around the country, and she loves a good orange juice, and she asked if the restaurants had fresh squeezed. And so many of them did not and thought it was so strange that we would even ask. But, you know, as time goes on, as people continue to evolve, especially as they turn to the Internet for new and exciting recipes and flavors, do you see any sort of social shift happening in food, though, where there's kind of an elitist crowd of people who maybe might turn up their nose at a macaroni and cheese made with Velveeta somewhere else in the country? Yes, certainly, absolutely, you you see that. Um, but I got to say, in this, in my book, that really isn't the case. I mean, the the few items that might not be off of a, 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 a supermarket shelf or a or a common supermarket shelf is definitely available and on Amazon. And that is the thing I have to say that for the good of the bad of Amazon, just like the good and the bad of the Google, you can find some of those mm. ingredients. So for I did try not to use corn syrup and corn uh, and um, corn products such as like cornstarch mm. because you know, we're all learning that that's an item that we should try to use less and less because of of uh, you know um, of trying to get away from those corn products right. and so I use things like Lyle's. Um, uh, Lyle's, um, oh, I think now I'm, the, the name just dropped for me, but it's Lyle's, it's similar to corn syrup, but it's mm. a Lyle's a syrup that you can get online. I tried to use potato starch in lieu of corn starch. So those aren't necessarily common ingredients, but you can get them easily from, uh, from, um, you know, from Amazon. Nancy, before we run out of time, I do want to try these cookies because I'm getting the waft of peanut butter in front of me. These are made by our producer, Lindsay. How do they look? I wish I was there next to I mean, if, if, if people look they on look? Uh, Instagram at LAist Official, uh, I'm showing them off on the camera right now, but they do have the raised uh, brown edges uh, in the center, a, a nice generous helping of peanut butter along with the Spanish peanuts. I also might be seeing either some salt or some sugar yes. in there. You should be some flaky sea salt. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I'm seeing. So I'm about to dive into that. But as I eat it and maybe uh, issue sounds of enjoyment, um, could you just tell us a little bit about what it was about that cookie when you tried it uh, that made it so good that it inspired a whole cookbook? Well, you know, I, I really, uh, you, you know, earlier you kind of touched on and I'm, uh, you were, you know, again, right on spot mm. with uh, saying that, that, that each recipe was really supposed to be the um, utmost flavor of that version. And so what mm. I tried to do with like the corn, the corn bread that had cream corn in it, I, my carrot cake has whole roasted carrots pureed into it mm. is to really try to coax out the ultimate flavor of, of that dessert. And so with adding the fresh peanut butter uh, to the cookie and adding the peanuts on top, it made it mm. more peanutty 
than any peanut butter cookie I've ever had. It is an extremely uh, peanutty cookie. Uh, this is Nancy Silverton I'm talking to. Nancy Silverton is a chef, baker, and author of the cookbook, The Cookie That Changed My Life and More Than 100 Other Classic Cakes, Cookies, Muffins, and pies that will change yours. There's some good holiday baking in here. Nancy Silverton, thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you. A pleasure. I just want to say these cookies, I, I don't know if I gave the full review yet, but just delightful job by our producer, Lindsay. Um, the salt on the top really magnifies the flavor overall. And yeah, that is a peanutty cookie. Uh, and you think you'd normally get that from a normal peanut butter cookie, but this one takes it to the next level. This is Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross. Uh, thanks for joining us again today. Film Week is next, and I'll be back with you again next week. Take care, okay? It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor, Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com, and the co-host of The Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. And from Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine, Charles Solomon. We begin with the latest from director Yorgos Lanthimos. This film, uh, Poor Things, is written by Tony McNamara, based on a 1992 novel of the same title. Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe star in Poor Things, which takes us back to Victorian times in a kind of romantic sci-fi motif uh, that uh, has extremes at the center of it. Christy, what did you think of <laughs> Poor Things? Even that description does not even begin to do this film justice. It is so beautifully, wonderfully wild and weird. I'm just going to put it out there right now. It's the best movie of the year. I was prone to like it anyway because I'm a big fan of Yorgos Lanthimos. I love The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Favorite, of course, which Tony McNamara also wrote all the way back to Dogtooth. And there's a thing in all of his films where it's the way people behave in extreme ways within like really pristine genteel settings that like require decorum right and that conflict is so interesting the awkwardness of interpersonal relationships the wrong thing people will say um, and so that definitely takes place here in this really lavish setting um, Emma Stone is I don't want to tell you the whole thing but Emma Stone is it in, would take too long it really know. would and there's <laughs> okay, so yeah. much to discover right like there's so many wonderful surprises here but she is sort of a childlike woman at the film's start and with that, she's grunting out words and she's throwing plates and sort of toddling around the house, all stiff-legged and gleeful. And as she progresses, the film's style progresses. It's this very grainy black and white at first. Robbie Ryan is the DP. It's absolutely beautiful. And you have peepholes and fish eyes and it's really weirdly stylized. And as she goes on this journey of self-discovery... She becomes more intellectual and the language becomes more florid and is gorgeously colorful. Like, I got to shout out the costume designer, 
Holly Waddington, but the costumes evolve with her because every new thing she wears reflects how she's growing up. Giant puff sleeves and moments that take your breath away. Willem Dafoe is very good in this. Mark Ruffalo has never been funnier. Do you guys know that Mark Ruffalo's funny? <laughs> He's hilarious in this as this like preening caddish buffoon. Um, Hannah Shagula and Ger- Gerard Carmichael are among the supporting cast. It's great. Oh, we're talking about poor things from director Yorgos Lanthimos. Peter. Uh, Mark Ruffalo is pretty funny as the Hulk. Uh, he is, but so. not like this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is the the darndest movie. Uh, I can say that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, it's <laughs> it's as Christy said. I mean, it's incredibly well worked out and designed. The production design, the costumes, the whole concept of it is unlike anything I've really seen, even from this director, who I have mixed feelings about. Uh, but I do think you know this is sort of. Uh, a a weird nouveau uh, vamp of of Bride of Frankenstein, among many other uh, uh, things that it derives from, but but it has that sort of, you know, Bride of Frankenstein was not strictly a horror film, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a comedy in many ways. Yeah. It was very you know funny and weird, and 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 this this is true here as well. I think. Mark Ruffalo is, is it may be the funniest performance I've ever seen, not only by him but by anybody. I mean, it, it, wow. it is incredibly funny. I mean, he is so on point about you know the, all the, the the changes that he goes through from being this kind of you know martinet macho pig to to a you know a groveling. Uh, all of the beats are there, and and it makes perfect emotional sense. He's hilarious. Where I have some problems with this movie is I think it. There's also a serious subtext to it that I think is is you know that that somehow this is a a movie about female empowerment and that the Emma Stone character is empowered by what she goes through. You know she becomes a prostitute in in a, in a you know Parisian brothel, and this is supposed to be sort of you know you know owning her power and and to, I you know I think there's so much more to that particular. Uh, uh, part of the movie for instance you know that that really being a prostitute and and all that she would have had to go through the brutalization the the disease and so forth that this is somehow not dealt with at all and is a sign of of empowerment as is a lot of what she goes through in the film and you know claiming her right to be sexual and so forth i think that that's a lot more complicated than this movie lets on and a lot more you know blissful than uh than the film owns up to uh, but it's it's certainly a trip, this film, and uh, unlike anything I've seen. Yeah, Christy, your thoughts about Peter's analysis? Yeah, of it. it's a fantasy version of reality. I mean, you can see that from the very first frames of it in terms of the production design and, and, and the way they speak to each other. I think she... Yes, she forges a sexual identity for herself, and there's no shame at all to who she sleeps with or why. And I think that's kind of bold and exciting. Like it destigmatizes sex work. But and but but fantasy does have a basis in reality, if only as a counterpoint. Do, do you think there's no serious subtext that he was going for in this film? I think he's going for serious subtext about her her liberation as a woman. The fact that every man in this film wants something from her. They want to hide her away. They want to control her. Um, they want to marry her whether she wants to be married or not. Only the women in this film are kind to her and supportive. That's definitely the subtext here. It's all about female empowerment. It's like a weirder version of Barbie. You know, <laughs> she has to leave and go find out who she is when it was inside of her all along, but against the increasingly oppressive patriarchy. Well, is the brothel run by a woman? Yes. Yes. 
Catherine Hunter, who is so great in the tragedy Macbeth. of Macbeth. She's the witches, and she yeah. adds a weird kind of spiky warmth to it. Right, right. I don't see that the fact that the, that the, a woman runs the brothel is necessarily a uh, free pass, though. All right. So you you thought it sounds like you were very impressed with the film in some ways, but but the sort of the political subtext, so to speak, gave you pause. Yes. All right. We're talking about uh, Poor Things, uh, the film written by Tony McNamara, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. It's rated R and in select theaters. Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, chronicles the development and execution of her Renaissance World Tour, this supporting her seventh studio album, Renaissance. The documentary music film is in wide release. Christy, what did you think of Renaissance? Oh, it's incredible. If you are a Beyonce super fan, you could not possibly get enough. This is nearly three hours long. It's probably not enough for a lot of folks who are really serious fans of hers. Um, She directed this and she wrote it and she produced it. She's, of course, at the center of it. It is similar to the Taylor Swift movie in that she worked directly with AMC theaters to distribute it. There's no studio. It's just out there, which is why it did not screen for critics before it opened. Um, Unlike the Taylor film, which is purely a concert film, This is a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, too, with her husband, Jay-Z, and their kids and what it takes to put on a show like this. One of the things I loved about it is how she spends a whole lot of time talking about the scaffolding. You're going to learn more about scaffolding than you ever could have imagined (laughs) going to the Beyonce movie. She takes a lot of time to shout out just that it is so elaborate and so expensive, and it's like three different tours going on at once. There's the one that's playing in a stadium. There's the one that's on its way to the next stadium. And then there's a third one that's already being set up at a third stadium. And so she's really quick to point out the drivers and the chefs and the trainers and the people who braid the dancers' hair backstage. She's proud that a lot of the people backstage are women, more so than she's ever seen on any tour. I like all that stuff. You like process. It's really cool. I was going to say, this sounds like far more elaborate than even the typical Broadway show because of the three different uh, infrastructures that they have to build for For sure. It's mammoth. And then the whole video screen process. All that's really interesting. But of course, you're there to be entertained. You're there to see a singular performer fully in her power in every stage of what she can do. She begins as this radiant, benevolent goddess and morphs into this like Afrofuturist cyborg. And then eventually becomes this growling, grinding vixen and and everyone in the audience knows every word. Part of the importance of the Renaissance tour is that it's meant to be like a safe place for anybody who is queer, who is transgender. And so she will take time to show people in the audience like clacking their fans and singing along and dressed in glittery silver. So it's a celebration of all that she does. It is very long. I am a an appreciator of her work. I'm not a super fan. After a while, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go home now. (laughs) But it is really cool to see her work with her daughter who, you know, worked hard to earn her spot on stage. And she's just an incredible performer. And just the costume changes alone, the way it's edited really highlights the the grandiosity of the costume design. So that's a treat in and of itself. It sounds, though, like what really separates it from the Taylor Swift concerts. Swift was really trying to create for people who couldn't go to Mm -hmm. the stadium concert the sense of being there. And so in the theater, people were saying it was like kind of like going to the concert. Yeah. This sounds like it does, It has that to some extent, but there's much more of that kind of making of documentary feel as well. It, it is a mix of both. It's sort of a half and half of both. So if you love Beyonce and want to see her perform, you 
get the thrill of that. But if you also want to know a little more, she's notoriously very private. And so to see the behind the scenes stuff is probably even more exciting for a lot of fans. Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, is unrated. It's in wide release. The uh, animated uh, chicken run, Dawn of the Nugget, is directed by Sam Fell. Uh, Charles, please start us off. Well, I love the fact that the Ardman studio has been able to go on being a British studio that makes a particularly kind of English comedy with a silliness and a use of wordplay and spoofs that is their own. At the same time, they're competing with the big Hollywood production houses. They have their own identity. Uh, They learned, I think, from Flushed Away, and they stick to it. And if you like it, you'll enjoy this. It's kind of the Truman Show meets Colonel Sanders. Uh, Ginger and Rocky have, have, you know, they escaped from the farm 20-some years ago when the first film came out. Uh, They now live in this blissful little island, and their adventurous daughter goes out and gets involved in this place that's billed as a paradise for chickens. But is it really? What's underneath all those fixed smiles and all those rainbows and all those happy faces and all that music? And Mrs. Tweedy is back, the arch-villain from the Chicken Pie Factory in the first film. Uh, It has all the Aardman things you expect, the ridiculous machinery, the terrible puns, some great vocal performances, the actresses who play Babs and Frizzle are back, and as much fun as ever. I don't know that it's the greatest film Aardman's ever made, but it's lots of fun and, again, has that British silliness that you don't get anywhere else. What's kept them from getting corrupted? (laughs) Uh, They never wanted to be a huge uh, empire. In fact, uh, the three partners who started it recently signed a document that the studio goes to the employees, that it cannot be bought and sold to some larger entity. Uh, And this is shortly before uh, everyone was stunned to hear that um, Ghibli was being sold to a a major Japanese publisher. Uh, They do a lot of charity work in Bristol where they're based with the Children's Hospital there. And it's just they always wanted just to do their good work, to do it their special way. And they're not out to conquer the world and open a string of theme parks. We're talking about Aardman Studios and their latest chicken run, Dawn of the Nugget. Peter. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, I think unlike, you know, Pixar and Disney at this point, uh, Aardman is is pretty consistently terrific, you know, from movie to movie. Uh, There isn't a whole lot of dips in what they do. It's it's shocking for me to recall that it was 20 years ago. I I, I couldn't believe that one. When Charles said Moore, that. yeah, yeah, that was when Mel Gibson was in it. Yes, <laughs> don't miss a bit. Uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's um, you know, it's very inventive. There's all that sort of Rube Goldbergish uh, contraptions and 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 you know calisthenics and uh, it, it really you know the voice work is 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 great. Uh, it's it's very plot driven. I think even more so than the than the last one, as I recall, uh, which may or may not be an issue. You know, I mean, sometimes when you have so much plot. It kind of, you know, sweeps up all the rest of the good stuff, and, and you're just sort of fixating on, all right, what happens next? But uh, but I really enjoyed it. It's one of the most enjoyable uh, animated films I've seen this year. Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. Disappointing. 
I'm going to deviate from you guys and say I really wanted to love it. I love Chicken Run. I love Shaun the Sheep. I love all our men, and it's been a joy to show them to my son. There's a quality to the animation that feels glossy here to me in a way that usually we don't see with our men. Usually the part of the charm of it is you can like see thumbprints yeah, on the right, clay, yeah. right? And the imperfection is part of what makes it so specific and so unique. And this felt kind of just like the glossy animation we see a lot. I agree that all the contraptions and devices are fun. The voices are fun. But just... I don't know. It just wasn't quite the same magic for me. Chicken Run Dawn of the Nugget is rated PG, and you can see it at the Bay Theater in Pacific Palisades. It starts streaming next Friday, December 15th on Netflix. More with our trio of critics when we come back on Film Week in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. It's Film Week on LA is 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Charles Solomon, Christy Lemire, and Peter Rayner. Next up, the South Korean action thriller Concrete Utopia, directed and co-written by Um Tai Hwa. Peter, what do you think of Concrete Utopia? This is a very impressive movie, um, and I say that having felt that I'm previously sort of maxed out on dystopian, apocalyptic movies at this point. Um, but this is very, very impressively made. It's uh, it's set in South Korea in some indeterminate uh, present future where there's been a huge earthquake, and um, it's not clear the extent of the earthquake, but everything is sort of, you know, in, in Seoul is uh, is cut off, and every all the buildings have, have been destroyed except for one high-rise apartment, uh, which is the only one for some reason left standing. And so the residents of this apartment, uh, you know, sort of band together. Originally, uh, you know, people come in from, from outside the city to, to try to live in the apartment because it's the winter time, and, you know, they're trying to be benevolent. But then it, it gets out of hand. There isn't enough food. There isn't enough room, blah, blah, blah. And so, so they start to push the people away. Uh, they're led, uh, the, the apartment uh, owners are led by... Um, the actor Lee Byung-hun, who's in Squid Game, who's very good as this kind of autocratic guy who becomes more and more power mad as, as, as he becomes more powerful um, in, in running this community. Uh, they have chants like, um, uh, our apartments belong to the residents. You know, they hold up signs. They have, you know, uh, uh, karaoke uh, nighttime parties and, and, and revels. But, but it, it turns into a kind of parable of, you know, essentially, what would you do? You know, if you were in this apartment and you knew that your life sort of depended on keeping it fairly inviolable, 
uh, you know, how would you react? This would work as a tw- old Twilight Zone yeah, episode. I think that, it has that feel exactly. to it. I think, you Rod know, I, Serling could have written exactly. this. Exactly. I think Burgess Meredith was in <laughs> that right, one, right? Exactly, yes. <laughs> Broke his glasses, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, but it's, it's, it's a powerful movie. It's very well made. It's very well directed. And, um, uh, you know, and I think it also has some contemporary relevance in terms of what it's about. It sounds fascinating. Concrete Utopia, the film from director and co-screenwriter Om Tai Hua. It's unrated in Korean with English subtitles. It's also South Korea's official submission for the 96th Oscars. You can see it in select theaters. The historical drama Origin stars ingenue Ellis Taylor, John Bernthal, and Nisi Nash-Betts. It's written and directed by Ava DuVernay. Christy, what do you think of Origin? This is two separate movies slammed up against each other very uncomfortably. And I found it to be a really frustrating experience because of it. Um, it's, it's an odd structure. Um, ingenue Ellis Taylor plays Isabel Wilkerson, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, um, and plays her as she is investigating, researching the book that she would go on to write called Cast. She is trying to draw connections between the Holocaust and slavery and the caste system in India. And so she's playing this real life person, doing all this research, traveling to all these places. And in the midst of it all, she suffers just one incredible personal loss one after another, and it's a, a tragedy that she is fighting through and that gives her purpose and a mission. So it's almost like a documentary version of the book, but it's also dramatized moments from the author's life with her husband, with her cousin. John Bernthal plays her husband, who is sort of an unusual role for John Bernthal because he's usually, you know, very virile and, and, and commanding, and he's sort of a sweet, nebbishy husband here. And then Nisi Nash Betts plays her, the cousin who is like a sister to her. They're very, very close. And so those individual moments reveal some some truth and some emotion, and that's compelling. When it's her in, like, libraries and writing things down on dry erase boards, it feels very ungainly and didactic, and, like, the two different movies together just don't work. There are some beautiful moments of poetry as she's she's doing recreations of, like, a couple dancing in 1940s Germany or a little boy who is black who's not allowed to swim in the pool with the white kids. Like, there's some heartbreaking and poetic images, but it all doesn't work together. It feels like a really rare misfire from Ava. Origin is the film from Ava DuVernay. Peter? Yeah, I get the feeling that, you know, she's she's made some strong documentaries, uh, you know, like 13th uh, about prisons. And, and I think she probably felt that, um, you know, she didn't want to do another documentary, even though in many ways this material lends itself to that. And, and But it's, it's too didactic. It's too... Uh, almost like homework in some ways, you know, the way the, the, the thesis is played out. It's a controversial thesis, but I think the film makes a case for it, you know, that, that it's not racism that's really at the heart of all these horrors. It's the, case, the caste system, uh, you know, that, that the, the untouchables in India are the same color as those who are, you know, oppressing them and, and, and so forth, and that the, the Nazis drew their, uh, you know, racist um, uh, policies from... Uh, American slavery and the treatment of blacks in this country and, and, you know, that that sort of thing, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's the central thesis of her book and it's put forward in the movie. Uh, but I think for me, the, the best parts of the film 
that weren't strictly the quasi-documentary ones were the um, the performances. Uh, Audrey McDonald and Anjanou um, Ellis Rawson was always terrific. Is always terrific, and also there's a one there's one wonderful scene uh, between Ellis Taylor and Nick Offerman, who plays a uh, a handyman who comes in to fix her plumbing, and he's wearing a MAGA hat. And you say, all right, I know where this scene is going. But it goes in a completely different direction. You know, she talks to him, and they, they talk about things that mean something to them, you know, after the ice is broken. And it, it's, it's a remarkable scene. I wish there had been more of it in this movie. Origin is the film from writer-director Ava DuVernay based on the book Cast, The Origin of Our Discontent, starring Ingenue Ellis Taylor, John Bernthal, and Nisi Nash-Betts. It's rated PG-13. You can see it at the AMC Century City 50 for a one-week Oscar qualifying run, then it opens wider in January of next year. Uh, the action crime drama Fast Charlie stars Pierce Brosnan, uh, Morena Bakarin, and James Kahn. It's his final film. He passed uh, back in July of last year. Philip Noyce, the director, and Richard Wenk wrote the screenplay. Peter, what'd you think of Fast Charlie? I liked it. It's it's a very low-key genre picture. It's uh, Pierce Brosnan plays a hitman uh, in the initial scene. Uh, he uh, is with a, a demented assistant who, instead of using the knife to, to off the victim, as he usually does, decides to put a bomb in a Krispy Kreme donut box, and then it explodes so that the, uh, the victim's head is, is severed, and so Pierce Brosnan can't prove to the, uh, his, uh, uh, you know, the guy that uh, ordered the hit that the guy's actually been killed. So, I mean, it's, it's a sort of uh, Elmore Leonard-ish uh, story, and it goes in a lot of different directions. Pierce Brosnan's um, southern, deep southern accent leaves something to be desired, but you almost don't care uh, because the film is so loopy. It's, it's a kind of you know, weird noir uh, that has all sorts of permutations that even when you see them coming, they're sort of... Ex- uh, they're italicized so that you, you sort of feel fond, fondly towards the, uh, to all the tropes that they're bringing up. Um, it is very touching to see James Caan, you know, who was, was, was pretty ill when this film was made. You can, you can see he's in a wheelchair for most of it. Um, but just, you know, as an extracurricular thing, I thought it was very moving to see him. Mm-hmm. And also Phil Noyce, who directed, has had a remarkable career of amazingly diverse uh, films, including Patriot Games and The Quiet American, Dead Calm, Rabbit Proof Fence. You know, he's a first-rate director, and I'm glad From to see Australia. he's still in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fast Charlie, directed by Philip Noyce, Pierce Brosnan, Marina Baccarin, uh, stars with James Caan. It's unrated. You can see it at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica, and Fast Charlie's also available on demand. The Animated Diary of a Wimpy Kid Christmas, Cabin Fever, is directed by Luke Cormican, and it's written by Jeff Kinney and Kathleen Shugru. Charles, what do you think of this new Diary of a Wimpy Kid? Well, the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series is hugely popular. They've sold millions and millions of books. I was talking with Christy before the show that her son read them when he was growing up. I don't understand why someone with the money and clout that Jeff Kinney must have doesn't insist on making better movies that are higher caliber and higher quality. Uh, the characters in this are very ugly in the way that that CG Peanuts movie was. Their heads are spheres with 2D features kind of pasted on them and the hair that looks like it was piped on through a pastry tube and kind of off-kilter features in some cases. And 
this film, which is only an hour long, it's more like a special, can't decide if it's trying to be a heartwarming Christmas tale in the tradition of how many hundreds of things that I've had to sit through during my career, or if it's a spoof of them, or a, 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 a nasty take on them. And there are all sorts of just contrivances, like suddenly in the suburb they get snowed in for over a week, and there's a, a big question over, well, what's going to happen? Are we going to have enough food? Are we going to have enough water? Are we going to have enough toilet paper? And who's hoarding it? Who's taking more? And then all through the show... Uh, the main character, Greg, wants this uh, Game Boy kind of set up that it's going to be his special present. And then in the last couple of minutes, he ends up giving it to a poorer kid, but then says, oh, well, I wouldn't want this to turn into a heartwarming Christmas special. And it hasn't. He gets his wish that way. But you just wonder why bother or if you're going to do one of something that's this beloved and popular franchise why don't you do it first rate that will really play to the fans of it? Diary of a Wimpy Kid Christmas Cabin Fever, Christy. I've seen a lot of Wimpy Kid stuff over my years as a mom here. <laughs> um, and read a lot of those books. And yeah, you're right, Charles. The the animation is so off-putting in its design. It's like like they're all made of fondant. It's so ugly. And then like Greg's mouth will be entirely over to the side of his face like he's a Picasso. But not everyone's like that. Rally's not like that. You see Rally head on. He's got all his features the way they're supposed to be. So that's kind of weird. Um, when it does come to life is when it goes back to the origins of these books when you have these little interstitials with the stick figures doing cute simple stuff and like oh like there's life to those in a way that the much more sophisticated quote unquote animation you know can can provide and the characters are all flattened out of all of their idiosyncrasies like there's no, not really a whole lot to them the live action early wimpy kid book movies rather are quite fun though so go check those out instead diary of a wimpy kid christmas cabin fever directed by luke cormack and it's rated pg the seventh installment in the series the animated feature is streaming on disney plus the peasants is a polish animated historical drama directed by dk welchman and hugh welchman who are a husband and wife filmmaking duo peter what did you think of the peasants I was sort of mixed. Uh, this is the uh, the husband and wife team that did Loving Vincent uh, a number of years ago, yeah. where you know they they hand painted like fifty million frames, and and it was about Vincent Van Gogh. That uh, technique had a certain rationale in that movie, although I wasn't crazy about that movie either. But um, but here they're basically just you know painting over live action uh, uh, actors that that. I don't really see the rationale for having done this, especially since it's so incredibly time-consuming to do this. You know, why did they do it this way? Uh, it, it, I haven't read the novel. It's a famous Nobel Prize-winning novel. It's still taught in Polish schools. Um, and uh, it's, you know, set in the late 19th century, and there's a lot of agrarian tumult in it, and Jagna, who's the main uh, woman in it, is uh, tossed around between all these men, and she's flirty and has all sorts of issues, and it gets violent. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of story in this film. Uh, but ultimately, I just kept sitting back and saying, you know, why am I watching this as a, quote, animated movie? Also, this was the the Polish uh, uh, entry for the Oscars this year, which was controversial because Agnieszka Holland, uh, who's the L.A. Critics uh, Lifetime Achievement Award yeah. winner, uh, had a film called Green Border, which is about the difficulties at the border in Polish, a controversial movie in Poland. 
which was, you know, pointedly not submitted uh, for this category. As sometimes happens with these international yeah. films, other factors than which is the better movie plays in it. The Peasants, Charles. Well, this is to real animation what the plastic models of the food outside a Japanese restaurant are to the actual dishes. It's devoid of sustenance or savor or flavor or pleasure. It's processed live action, and as Peter pointed out, there's absolutely no reason to do this except as a gimmick. But it feels almost like a, a Polish Faulkner with a kind of while I lay dying ski. It's it's dreary, it's long, and the processing the live action to do that just adds nothing to the story. The Peasants is unrated. It's in Polish and Latin with English subtitles. You can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. It's unrated. The Canterville Ghost, a British animated family comedy starring the voices of Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie with Freddie Highmore. Kim Burden and Robert Chandler are the directors. We've got just about 30 seconds, Charles, for The Canterville Ghost. Well, in Oscar Wilde's original story, Sir Hugh Canterville has been scaring people to death in this a British mansion for centuries. In this one, he talks them to death. It <laughs> never shuts up. The animation is very limited. There are some clever bits that look like pop-up books, but boy, your ears will be ringing when it ends. The Catterville Ghost uh, is available for on-demand viewing. It's rated PG. Our critics will stay with us when we come back. More from Peter, Christie, and Charles. We'll be talking with them about the plethora of awards, shows, and voting that goes on this time of year. And a very important one is coming up, the L.A. Film Critics Association. We'll hear about that process when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Film Week on LA State 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Sure looking forward to our annual Film Week Oscar preview coming up in early 2024. But between now and then, there are so many different organizations giving out their best of honors in advance of the Oscars themselves. It's created, I think, a lot of confusion for people who follow films. Seems like every organization, regardless of size, 
thinks it has to have its membership vote on honors. But one of the groups that has been held in highest regard over the years and uh, includes all of our Film Week critics is the L.A. Film Critics Association. This weekend, they're going to be making their selections for the best performances, the best artistry, and the best films of 2023. And our critics, all three of whom, just like all of our Film Week critics, are members of LAFCA, are Christy Lemire, Peter Rayner, and Charles Solomon. Christy, just to start us off a bit with um, how seriously everybody takes this responsibility, <laughs> you know, coming to the meeting this weekend. It's a great privilege, and we do take it very seriously. And we have this running email thread that goes on for weeks and weeks where it's like, oh, you got to see this. Oh, you got to see this. Here's a link to this movie. Here's a publicist for this movie. You got to see it. And so you sort of feel like, ah, I, I want to see it all. I've got to be ready. But there's a certain level of readiness you have to have going into it to feel like you can vote knowledgeably. And I view that, and I view doing a top 10 list at the end of the year as a, a great privilege that I don't take for granted. Um, but yeah, it is sort of like Cramming for a final exam, isn't it? Like we, we got to get out of here, Larry. We got to go home. And yeah, watch got to watch yeah, more movies. It's, <laughs> it's like a final exam where the teachers keep sending you emails. You know, have you read chapter seven yet? <laughs> We're having a special. Uh, there's a special reading of chapter seven tonight with uh, the author discussing it, and you know, drinks afterwards. And I know we all get probably more than a dozen invitations a day yeah. to something. You know, my Not email just overflows. To, to see films and post-film film. discussions. Yeah. And, yes, endlessly. I mean, it is important, I think, uh, to, whenever possible, see these films, particularly if you're voting for, say, cinematography, to see it on a big screen. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but uh, for better and, more, and for worse, uh, I mean, all of the critics don't see all films in theaters at this point. Some of them it's aren't impossible. even available. No, it's impossible. And so you do you do what you can. Uh, what bugs me is sometimes some of the, uh, the the critics in the group will will spring something the night before. You know, there's this masterpiece from Madagascar. I, <laughs> I know it's five hours. I know it's five hours long, but but you, but know, you, you must should, see it. You must see this to to make a, an adequate vote. Yeah. Well, I I picture also factions within LAFCA, and I may have to, I may totally have this wrong, but people like advocating for a particular film and trying to lobby other members. Does oh, that yes. go on? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of lobbying, which is fine. You know, I think what 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 we're discouraged from doing in the uh, preamble is to. Um, knock a lot of movies, you know, mm -hmm. to say, you know, this is a great movie as opposed to this is a great movie, unlike this terrible movie that everybody yeah. likes. Yeah. Nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. And and it, is it fun to get together and do this? I know there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into preparing for it. But is it actually fun to make the selection? It's nice to be together because we are also scattered and, and increasingly what we do, we do as freelancers. I, I like to say that I have six jobs and I have no job. You know, Justin Chang is a rarity and he's a full-time critic at a major newspaper. And so to actually all be together in one place where we're not just scattered is a great joy. We have bagels and coffee beforehand. We have lunch which not everybody enjoys in the outside world because we take a break halfway through to eat something. Um, but that part is nice. But there's, a, you know, the way we vote, there's like, you know, a wave can take over the room where someone's voting for it, another person's voting for it. You realize, oh, we're going to do this. Oh, this is a really cool choice. One thing I love about being in LAFCA is that we will pick an out-of-the-box choice like yeah. Tom Hardy for Locke, you know? I, I, and that is, I think, what happens in the room where there's a sense of possibility and discovery. Yeah, I think the group is is um, in many ways 
has the most unorthodox choices of any of the three major groups, the others being the National and the New York group. Uh, you know, we've given it to, you know, famed Korean actresses and all sorts of people who normally just wouldn't be on the radar at all. Uh, and I think, um, you know, that's also this is the vote that we're having this Sunday is the first time we've all met in person to do this since 2019. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't well, realize so you, yeah. did, you did it over, over Zoom. Zoom yeah. Yeah. Well, and as Christy said, we're so uh, isolated from each other these days because there aren't many screenings. Most of the films and Peter alluded to this. You watch at home on your TV because that's the only way you can access it, or it means a, a two-hour drive to the one public screening they may be having. So we do come together. However, the Sarah, the the meeting proceeds with all the speed of Tolkien's Entmoot. <laughs> with uh, uh, these are people that, that I picture too. That this yes. would take because a lot of you were talkers. I picture this being a, Us? Yeah. a very extensive meeting. My suggestion, by the way, to have the lunch catered by the three-star Michelin restaurant in Fred Wiseman's documentary. <laughs> yeah, there you was, go. Yeah. It was shot down, but yeah, I, I tried. Fit you the know, budget. Yeah, nothing well, ventured, nothing yeah. gained. Well, but at um, the speed we're going, we're going to need a midnight snack soon. <laughs> Yeah. Also, you you pick a life achievement award. You were mentioning earlier. Is that done at this meeting? And that was yeah. done before. Oh, okay. You've that's one of the few that's pick. done before. Is yeah. that for public announcement? Yes, at this point, sure. Who, who is that this year? Agnieszka Holland. Oh, you Polish. said oh, that was yeah. for this year. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's, all, that's also a very diverse list. That uh, you know, we've had Hayao Miyazaki, we've had actors, we've had cinematographers. I remember Doris Day, and that was quite controversial. I remember. Yes. Yeah. Well. Oh. Who also, would knock Doris Day? I, I would. Yeah. Well, the, the, you know, it, we usually try to to give it to people who have not won Oscars. Mm-hmm. You know, people who were who were great but haven't been officially recognized in the way that they should be. Uh, that doesn't always play out or should play out. But uh, one year we gave it to Mel Brooks, and that unfortunately was a COVID year, so we 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 didn't have Mel Brooks in person doing his thing in oh, front of us. You know, that was that would have been great. But we did have Blake Edwards and Chuck Jones one year where there was actually a tie. Oh, wow. And, and both very worthy of, of yeah. celebration. Yes, and that was lots of fun. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. Uh, two very gifted uh, gifted people. Y- you mentioned the National Society of Film Critics, which uh, several of the LAFCA members are also in that. I think of that as a highly prestigious, very selective organization. You're in that, Peter. Is, is their process similar to what LAFCA does? Uh, it's somewhat similar, although in recent years they have... Um instituted something which I, I wouldn't be upset if if LAFCA did as well, which is to have a sort of preliminary vote in advance of the actual day of voting where you come up with your three choices. And then based on those choices, you vote on those rather than just sort of inventing the wheel at the meeting. Uh, and I think it, it does save some time. You know, LAFCA, I think, has 60-some members now, right? Uh, it's a lot, yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> and uh, and Nationals, I think, is is. 40 or 50. I mean, the numbers tend to go down because jobs go away. But um, uh, but in, in every other respect, you know, I think in, in one group, it's it's sort of open voting on the first ballot in national. It's, you know, you send a piece of paper to the front and then it's read out loud. So that's a little different. Um, you know, some of the way that you tabulate it is slightly different, but, you know, not to get into the weeds on it, but there isn't much of a difference. Um, but, you know, of course, all of the critic groups, whether they admit to it or not, want to be different, right? So if the New York group just voted for Killers of the Flower Moon for Best Picture, you know, there's a sort of 
you know, it's less likely to yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, you know, in L.A., San Francisco kind of thing, uh, where you know you want to maybe do something else. But I don't know that that. I mean, it doesn't really factor in with me. I I like to think that I vote for what I think is the best film. Period. And if the other groups vote for it, so be it. And I think that's true for most of the people in the group. It seems like you know, with some of these groups that that start ever earlier, that they're almost trying to influence what's going to happen with. Yeah, well, they want to be first on. They want to be first, and I think that's always been a problem for me. I mean, when 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 I was in the New York group, they were always rivaling the, the National Board of Review, which don't. What get is me, the National? Don't get board me started. That was my question. <laughs> they're it's, scholars and academics. It's a bunch of anonymous educators who throw a great party at Tavern on the Green. <laughs> uh, but they were always they always were first, and then New York said, "Well, we want to be first. So you know, it was like you know, shot for shot. And then you, people were voting like before Thanksgiving. So what are they voting? How can on? you the, even yeah. see the film? Exactly. What are you voting on? The trailer? You know. <laughs> I think well, that could what, be its own. I category. think the National Board of Review was voting. I know for a fact that a couple of films were were just not ready when they voted. So you know, and that's that was a problem more when we when we did have screenings that. Okay, can we, you know, is this going to be out in time for us to see to consider that's going to be a major release? And in some cases, we weren't sure. You know, is that going to be done? We're going to continue our conversation on Film Week with our critics. That's Charles Solomon, Peter Rayner, Christy Lemire with us. We're talking about the plethora of award shows. What does this all mean as, uh, of course, the studios and uh, actors and all look to promote their work using those award vehicles? We'll be back in a minute. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. In case you missed the reviews of our trio of critics, it's not too late. You can listen at your convenience by getting it wherever you get your podcasts or at LAS.com through the LAS smartphone app. You can listen to Film Week and subscribe to it as a podcast. Hear it whenever it's convenient. We're joined by critics Christy Lemire, Peter Rayner, and Charles Solomon. We're talking about the explosion of award shows and whether they matter, what this means uh, to films. And one of the points you all were making is about how hard it is now for critics to even see some of these films. You know, is it your sense that that maybe the studios and streamers don't put as much stock in what critics have to say through these awards? I think they're just psyched to finally be able to be back and planning events in person, and that's why there are so many things going on, and it's impossible to get to them all. You know, as, as we were saying earlier, like, it's now, it's tonight, it's the, the director's there. And so, um, and because there are also streamers, as well as studios, it's like double the content, and so it's just, it's a lot. We do our best to get to as much as we possibly can. And how many different organizations are there now? Because there's the broadcast <laughs> critics, the yeah. online, you said... Uh, that there's a, there's a uh, gay film critics, there's black film critics, and I think just about every city has their own right. critics. Group. There's San Francisco, there's I'm sure there's Chicago, Phoenix, Boston, there's Seattle, yeah, Boston. Miami. Part of it is just commercial. It's like every city has a film festival, you know. So so every you know there's Asian so many American critical. awards. Yeah, yeah, I mean I I think part of it is just a species of PR. But you know when we were talking about access to these movies, it does seem like this year especially. You know, we used to get packages of DVDs from all the from all the studios. Now most of that is streaming, and some of it 
it doesn't exist at all. Weirdly, Netflix is the one company that still sends out DVDs yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah, you get that big stack in the mail if yeah, you're, I mean, if you're uh, an you know, academy from, from the, the major streamer. Yeah, you know, a critic. Yeah. Uh, whereas some of the studio, like Sony Pictures Classics, used to abhor all of that. Now it's it's just streaming. You know, I think that 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 may play into the idea that that they're they're less concerned with making sure that you've seen the film as a critic when you vote than they used to be because of the influencers, because of all the other things that are going on. Uh, you know, I think it just it, 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 it's, it's more of a of a sidelight than a main event for them to really target critics for awards. How is has and I know this is a bigger topic. We can explore it another time. But but I think um, the whole uh, awards season is is also a good time. How much of the of the sort of influence or role of critics has changed, Christy? Do you think it's it's not what it was? I mean, I don't want to think that. <laughs> I want I don't to think either. that what we do matters and that our insight matters and our experience matters. But um, there are a lot of folks who just have a YouTube channel and they just, they love movies. They're, they're, I have a YouTube channel. It's called Breakfast All Day. We're serious critics, Alonzo Duraldi and I. But there are a lot of folks who just, I love movies. Here are my thoughts. And they have an audience as well. So I think folks will seek out people whose voices they think matter or whose voices align with their experiences. And so, you know, maybe it dilutes the power of, of opinions. It's, it's hard to say. For our audience, I mean, the, your criticism carries tremendous weight. That's why yeah. this is a very listened to program people yeah. but i'm wondering for younger moviegoers particularly well, I, think, yeah, I think christy has her a point that people go to people go to sources they agree with um they don't necessarily want to be challenged and one of the problems particularly for people who are interested in anime which you know i write a lot about these days is there's a whole group of well to use a nice word to be otaku who anything that was animated in japan is suddenly the gospel and it's the next hot thing, and it's absolutely wonderful, and there's no discernment over better and weaker or serious discussion by people who understand like, how a film is made, what goes into it, what's in the design yeah. work. Well, critique is very different than just saying whether you like something yes. or not also. Peter, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's always been a sort of a split, and it's, it's more so now than ever, uh, between... You know, big commercial movies that are in, in, in many respects, you know, critic proof and, you know, smaller indie docs, foreign films, animated and so forth, where it's a more specialized audience. And I think that those are the people that that we speak to more than than, you know, I mean, no one's going to say, you know, damn, Peter Rayner hated the new Indiana Jones movie. Now I'm not going to go see it, <laughs> yeah. you know. But if I say, you know, I really think, you know, Concrete Utopia or something is good, yeah. you know, people will go see it. The problem is that a lot of that indie sector, those kinds of films, are, are, are mostly older audiences who are not turning out uh, in, in, in vast numbers to see films in theaters. And so it's very important that those films are accessible in other ways. And they can get lost on streaming services. Yeah. Netflix has is such a glut of films yeah. that it's so easy to, and it, it might never come up in the algorithm to recommend for you. Yeah. Uh, I also uh, want to talk about the, you mentioned independent films, the Independent Spirit Awards or Film Independent Awards, which are held in late February in advance of the Oscars. This used to be a really big deal because they highlighted films 
films that really were not up for Oscar consideration, more what we used to call art house films. But as Oscar, in fact, has recognized a lot of films that would have been uh, film independent type movies, I wonder how that's changed, uh, Christy, your sense of, of film independence work. Well, I would say over the past decade, there's been an increasing alignment between the kinds of films that get nominated for Oscars and the kinds of films that the Spirit Awards tend to honor. I think part of that is because they have increased their budget limit for a long time. It was $20 million was the maximum budget your film could have to be considered for a Spirit Award. And now it's $30 million. The Cassavetes Award, which they give to really micro budget films, um, used to be $500,000 and now it's a million. Maybe it's just everything costs more. <laughs> Maybe that's part of it. But I think what you see is them the kind of coming toward each other where the Oscars have changed their membership and become younger and more diverse and more open-minded to challenging fare. At the same time, the Spirit Awards have raised their budget, so they're kind of getting closer to each other than they would. The Spirit Awards will still absolutely shine a light on films that you never would have heard of otherwise, and that's very exciting, in the documentary category especially, but um, but there is some overlap there now, yes. But they were created in an era when a Moonlight would have never won Best Picture. Yeah, it's different. Or Nomadland. Yeah, sorry. We had a similar thing in animation, we added the uh, independent feature to the Annie's because you've been getting such interesting work uh, from people like Cartoon Saloon and Tom Moore and some of the Japanese studios and French and other European studios that, you know, Tom Moore, unfortunately, every film he's made has been up against one of Pete Doctor's films from Pixar. I mean, and Pete is a great filmmaker. He's won three Oscars. uh, But you know, there's no way a, a cartoon saloon film is going to beat a Pixar film at the Oscars. But having a category for the smaller film in the Annie's recognizes the work that's often some of the most interesting being done, as opposed to, say, Trolls and the other franchises that How were How have the fed. Annie's changed over the years, if they have? Well, that was originally a very small group of, of awards that were given each year. It was chosen by a committee and it was all for lifetime achievement. And the uh, Windsor McKay Award went only to an animator. And then they widened it, and now there are categories that people vote on. And there are still a couple of jury awards. Uh, there are three Windsors given each year, usually, to people like um, Lillian Schwartz, the pioneering computer animator. There's a June Foray Award to service, but the yeah. rest people vote on, and there are okay. lots, particularly in TV. Peter, you quick comment? We uh, need to wrap. Uh, yeah, I, I think the Spirit Awards affected the Oscars in that people were complaining that the Oscars were all going to films like Nomadland, and it was turning into a kind of glorified Spirit Awards. And that was one reason why they wanted they expanded the Best Picture to 10, because they wanted to bring in more big movies, not just the smaller films that ah. could just as easily pass in the Spirit Awards. All right. Uh, yeah. All right. Peter Rayner, Christy Lemire, Charles Solomon, thanks so much for joining us on Film Week. Have a wonderful weekend. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.